Hi, this is David Flower, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. We're talking about Jonah this morning. Today we're beginning a new four-part series for the month of May called The Gospel According to Jonah. Uh, The book of Jonah is much more than a children's story. In fact, I submit to you that this ancient book has unfortunately too often been oversimplified and misrepresented. As a result, many people have missed its rather sophisticated message and the style in which is being used in this book, which also uses humor to communicate theological truths and provoke obedience from its readers. The book of Jonah is about a reluctant and rebellious prophet who turns out, rather ironically, to be the most successful evangelist in the Old Testament. No credit to to Jonah on that point. It's a story about God's mission to save the lost, specifically our enemies. And it's through this challenging book, as we'll see in this four-part series, that we're being invited to look in the mirror and then answer the call to join God's mission of mercy. So that's what we'll be doing. Would you pray with me one more time this morning? Father, We now open up our hearts to you. Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Holy Spirit, would you show us where we need to give attention to the things in our heart, in our mind, in our life, that you might shine light there, Lord, that you would set us free. Set us free in the way that we view you, that we'd view you to be the God who looks like Jesus, that we'd know your love and we'd know your heart not just for ourselves and your church, but for the nations. And all of God's people said, amen. When I was a baby, so my mother tells me, uh, I I was too small, of course, to remember this. And my mother told me that she worried a lot about what might happen to me. I was her first. I'm the oldest of four. And so... She said that she would go in at night and look at me in the crib, and she was just so anxious and worried and fearful that something was going to happen to me. I know some of the mothers, especially the mothers in the room, can relate to that. Well, it bothered her so much that she invited our pastor at the time to come over to the house and to pray for me. And, and, God, and she told God this. She said, God, I... If you will protect my son, it was almost, this almost sounds like a, a Hannah kind of prayer, uh, I, I give him to you. He is yours. And so I've always remembered that. And I, I've always sensed uh, from, from my earliest years, being a little kid sitting in the church and staring up at the ceiling like some of you probably do. Uh, <laughs> of course, there were, there were, there were uh, strips of wood that you could count, and I would sometimes do that as a little kid. Or I would bring my coloring books in at five, six years old and color. 
but I just always felt sort of drawn to the Lord. And when I was in junior high, I remember sitting in science class because, and I remember it's science because the, the blacktop tables that they have in science and lab classes. And I can just remember being there and you, you might say it was, a, I don't know, daydreaming, but I think it was more than that. I think it was a vision of seeing myself, you know, I'm a junior high kid, of seeing myself grown up and talking in front of lots of people. And let me tell you that I didn't get excited about that. <laughs> I mean, I like to watch movies, as you could tell. I like to sort of entertain to, to a small audience, but I wasn't really interested in getting up in front of people. And my youth pastor would quickly find that out when he asked me to do various things. And he discipled me when I was 13 years old. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, but when I turned 16, for lots of reasons I won't go into this morning, uh, I will simply say I think I was frustrated that I didn't have any Christian friends in the public school where I was going. I didn't have, at the time I was moving into adolescence, I didn't have a good relationship with my father and I projected that dysfunction onto God. And a lot of the men in my life were kind of cold, hard, not affirming, not affectionate. And for, at least for me, I feel like that translated into terms of faith and my portrait of God, and it made it really difficult, increasingly difficult uh, to follow the Lord, uh, even though I had this calling on my life. Uh, and, so, and so all of that shaped me and influenced me and the hypocrisy that I sort of saw around me in the family, in the church, to run from God. And I did that when I was about 16 years old. I got my driver's license and immediately started going places I was told not to go. I started breaking promises that I had made. You know, one of the things that was popular uh, back in the 90s, some of you remember this, is the true love waits. You, you got that ring. So all of the commitments, all of the promises, I were breaking them one after the next. And I became pretty good at sinning <laughs> and covering up my sin. And I was running hard and fast away from God. But I could never seem to get away from him. I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting that you think that you can, that, that if I can just go uh, to places that are dark enough and evil enough, if I can listen to enough Marilyn Manson, if I can hang around with the right people, you know, and, and immerse myself in the darkness, that maybe, just maybe, uh, I can get away from God. And I can recall several instances where I was surprised to hear the voice of God in the middle of the darkness. One time it was at a party and we're sitting around doing things that I wasn't gonna tell my mama about, right? And I could still remember the voice of God saying, David, what, what are you doing? You, you know better than this. You know the truth, these people don't. And instead of doing this, you should be telling them about me. <laughs> so it, it didn't matter. I, the, another time it happened, uh, I was at uh, a, a, a rock festival called Ozfest. You've heard of Ozzy Osbourne. And Black Sabbath was the headliner at the end of the day. It was, actually, it was actually night. And so it got dark and we were in this amphitheater and uh, they, they started, these drunken high people, I suppose, started fires in the lawn of the amphitheater. They didn't just start fires, they were dancing around the fires as Black Sabbath played. And, and I, I still to this day can remember vividly 
looking at all of this and hearing the voice of God say, David, look around. You're in a worship service, but they're not worshiping me. And you're not worshiping me. No matter how hard, no matter how fast I ran, I could not get away from God. It ultimately led to me hitting rock bottom, and think, I'm thankful for grandparents who loved me over about a two-year, two-week period, uh, sort of loved me back to opening myself back up to God because things had gotten so, so bad, so dark, so scary with the stuff that I was into that I could hear the voice of the Lord say, David, I'm not going to keep playing this game with you. I have protected you up to this point, but I can't keep doing this. And so I eventually found my way to my knees. And I also found how this scripture is so true. You've probably heard it. Psalm 139, it says, Oh Lord, you've examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up, you know my thoughts, even when I'm afar and far away. You see me when I travel, when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me, you follow me, you place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. Verse 7, he says, David, this is, this is a Psalm of David, by the way. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me. Your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even darkness, even darkness I cannot hide from you there. To you, the night shines as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to you. Think about this, folks. You know, I feel that I can personally relate some to Jonah's story. If you're familiar with Jonah's story, you could already connect in the dots, especially with how Jonah runs from God here in chapter 1. For like Jonah, I learned that you can run, but you can't hide. And that is the sermon title this morning for this first message in our four-part series, if you're taking notes. But before we begin reading in chapter 1, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to there, open there uh, to Jonah 1, if you would. Before we begin reading that, I'm just going to walk us through that chapter verse by verse. I do want us to reflect for a moment on what we know about the prophet Jonah and the book that bears his name. Most scholars believe that the Old Testament book of Jonah was written in the post-exilic period. That means after the exile, 586 B.C. So likely two to three hundred years after Jonah actually lived, this book was put together. You see, Jonah was an 8th century B.C., 8th century B.C. prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. This is the time when the divided kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And the Assyrian Empire was threatening to take over the northern kingdom of Israel. This is the time, this is the time of Jonah. This is also during the time of Amos, the prophet Amos and Hosea, You'll recognize those names from the Old Testament, who were contemporaries of Jonah there in the north, as well as Isaiah and Micah, 
who were living in the southern kingdom of Judah. So that's Jonah's context. And as prophets go in the biblical canon, the Jonah, Jonah is considered to be a minor prophet. And he's unique among the Hebrew prophets because the book of Jonah focuses on his life and not his words or his prophecies. And the only other reference that we have to Jonah is in 2 Kings chapter 14. If you're interested in that, you can jot that down. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 through 25. And, it's, and it, it tells us Jonah, who's a, t- a temple court prophet, who is speaking very, speaking very favorably of the wicked king Jeroboam II. He's actually telling him that, oh, you're going to regain the lands that were lost, that Solomon had attained. Don't worry about Assyria. That, that, was, that was the prophet Jonah to the wicked king Jeroboam II. While Amos, at the same time, in the same kingdom, is proclaiming judgment. No, 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 king. Don't think that's going to happen at all. God's not happy with you. And so this says a lot about Jonah. The only other reference we have, but that says a lot about Jonah. So clearly Jonah was a historical person. But of course, and I feel that it's probably best to just address this now before we dive into the narrative, we can't help but wonder if this story really happened, right? Have you ever wondered that? Just be honest. Nobody's going to shame you. Raise your hand. Did you ever wonder that this, if this story ever happened? It's it mainly because, well, it's, it's a well of a story, <laughs> so, so to speak. And for some, believing that that Jonah's story is a historical event, that he literally spent three days inside the belly of a great fish, is the test of orthodoxy for some in your view of Scripture. But I don't think this should be the case. Hear me say that. I don't think that should be the case. Primarily, I'd like to suggest that we consider how the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit and authoritative according to, and first and foremost, the original intent of the author, and in keeping with the literary genre, see there are different styles of writing in the Bible and different methods that they intentionally use to communicate truth about God and his story of salvation in Christ. Or in other words, we should ask this question, did the author intend for us to read Jonah as a historical event? It's worth asking. So in my educated but sincerely humble opinion, I don't believe So, I don't believe so, and here's why. Think about this with me. In this story, we have a prophet who rebels and pagan sailors who repent. There's nothing else like that in the Old Testament. And the the pagan sailors show more reverence for God than his own so-called prophet. And then there is a great fish that swallows the prophet and spits him back up after three days, to be specific, without oxygen, in hydrochloric stomach acid. (laughs) And then there's a wicked king who repents after hearing a one-sentence sermon. (laughs) A one-sentence sermon about a coming judgment, which is only actually five words in Hebrew, which results in the entire city fasting and repenting, including the cows. You ever seen a cow repent? Well, it happens in Jonah. Cows repent, and at the end we read of a large plant that grows up seemingly overnight to shade the prophet's head as he holds out hope that their repentance won't last very long and that God will smite his enemies after all. 
But then, it's not over, then a worm. A worm is sent by God along with the scorching sun and a hot desert wind comes to destroy the plant. As we'll see uh, later in chapter 4, the story ends with Jonah more upset about the loss of the shade-bearing shrub than he is at the prospect of an entire city being destroyed because of the sin that had overrun it. And all of this, I believe, is evidence that what we're dealing with in Jonah is an ancient comedy. An ancient comedy. This is Hebrew satire. And they're using what little we know of the prophet Jonah. We know he wasn't a great guy. He supported a wicked king. He wasn't doing his job, right? To tell a humorous story to make a really important theological point. Think about this with me. Like all good comedians, you probably have your favorite. Think about comedians. The author knows that irony and humor has a strange way of getting truth into hard hearts and closed minds. You ever find yourself laughing at something that you disagree with? The comedian is hilarious, and you're like, he's got a point. This is the point of humor. This is the point of the book of Jonah, you see. That's because when truth is hitched to humor— It has the potential of sneaking past our defenses, confronting our hypocrisy, and inspiring change. That is comedy at its best. Comedy at its best. And that's what the author of Jonah wants to do for God's people. Use what we would call historical fiction in a way that makes us laugh, lament, and then learn how to obey God and emulate his heart for the nations. Now that's my take, that's my opinion. You don't have to agree with it. But again, let's not make this a test of orthodoxy, all right? Now what about Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 41? Some of you are probably already thinking, uh, doesn't Jesus mention Jonah? Yes, Jesus does refer to Jonah there in Matthew 12 when he responds to the disbelief of the religious leaders and their demand for a sign. Remember, he, they demand a sign. Jesus said, only a wicked, perverse generation keeps demanding signs like you. I'm only going to give you one sign. What does he say? The sign of what? Jonah. Three days in the belly of a fish, three days in the tomb. And God will resurrect and raise me. So Jesus says that Jonah's story points to him. And in so many ways, as I've been studying Jonah this past week, in so many ways, some of which we're going to touch on in this series. But notice, Jesus referring to Jonah doesn't necessitate a literal reading of the story. No, not by any means. Remember, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus uses Abraham, a historical figure, in his parable about the rich man and Lazarus, right? You remember this? To make a theological point, Jesus himself uses historical fiction to teach a lesson, to tell this parable, to proclaim the good news, and to further God's mission. Therefore, my main concern is that if we will recognize the literary style of the book of Jonah, and that the text itself is actually giving us clues as to how we should read this book, then we won't waste our time fretting and arguing about whether or not this story actually happened, judge others according to their interpretation, and then strip the text of its literary genius. And I do think it's, it, it does have a literary genius so that we can then ask deep questions about God's character, about God's forgiveness and grace, 
about repentance, about our love for our neighbors and our enemies, and about heeding the call to join God's mission of mercy. Amen? Amen? Amen. So with all that in mind, let's begin reading in Jonah chapter 1. You have your Bibles? I'm going to be reading from new, the New Living Translation, and you can follow along with whatever, whatever version you have. Chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord, you notice that it should be in all caps uh, in your Bible, and when you see Lord in all caps, that is the, the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. It's the covenantal name for God. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up or, or arise, a literal translation might say, arise and go to the great city of Nineveh, the great city of Nineveh. Now, every other time in the Old Testament that we've seen a city described as the great city, this is not like American English where we say, oh, that's great. No, no, not great in that way. <laughs> so whether you're talking about the cities of Cain or let's say Sodom and Gomorrah, or the city uh, of Babylon. These were all referred to as great cities, great in, in, great in sin. So he's told to go to the great city of Nineveh, and Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian empires, I told you, are threatening the northern kingdom of Israel. I mean, they are the big dogs of the day, and they're threatening the northern kingdom of Israel. They are their greatest enemies, and God says, you go talk to them. I have a message for you. Now think about that. I'll, I'll say more about the Assyrians in a couple, uh, a couple of weeks when we come back to Nineveh. Then he says, announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. Now, you, you might think that Jonah would love hearing that. <laughs> Go announce some judgment. Oh, I'm, I'm all in. But he doesn't do that. Jonah got up, he, he arose. Now this is a phrase that's used in other Old Testament stories. We see the, prop, the prophet gets up or he, he uh, arose and it usually says, and he went and did what God told him to do, but look what it says here. Jonah got up, he arose, and he went in the opposite direction. <laughs> to get away from the Lord, to run from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a, sh a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Now, notice he, he keeps repeating that. He's trying to get away. He's going to Tarshish. They want you to see that. Where is Tarshish? Where is Tarshish? Well, no, look at the map here. Jonah sails out of Joppa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv. And he not only heads in the opposite direction of Nineveh, but he actually heads 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. And, and by this point in the Old Testament, another thing that they want to, they're sort of hyperlinking to other places in the Old Testament by mentioning Tarshish. Tar Tarshish would have had a, a, a representation, a rep let me get it, reputation for being a false Eden. You remember one of the things that King Solomon was told not to do was accumulate a lot of horses, not put your faith in your tanks. He was also told not to accumulate a lot of gold, but that's exactly what he did. He had ships, and remember, Hebrews were not a, a seafaring people, but it didn't stop him from boarding ships, sending them to Tarshish, which had a lot of gold, and storing up the temple with gold. They think, they think over 20 tons like it said, on 666 talents, that's over 20 tons of gold. That's about a billion dollars worth of gold today. And Solomon was told not to do that. So 
later on, they look back, anytime they talk about the ships of Tarshish or going to Tarshish, Tarshish sort of represents of how man seeks to create an Eden according to their own wisdom, try to create an Eden according to their own power, doing things their own way, seeing it our way, but not God's way. And that's exactly what Jonah is doing. He's seeing it his way. He's seeing it his way. Look at verse four now, verse four. But the Lord Yahweh hurled a powerful wind over the sea. Notice the first use of hurled there. First it's Yahweh hurls a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Now actually in the Hebrew, this, they're, they're using personification here, which is another, I think, clue that uh, this is sort of an ancient comedy, not to be all taken literally, but the, the, it says that literally the ship threatened to break apart. <laughs> the ship threatened to break, it was a nervous wreck. <laughs> Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods. Now, anytime you see sh- sailors, which you don't see it often in the Bible, but sailors were shady characters, you know, and they kind of like pirates, you know. They're probably f- uh, filthy, dirty-mouthed, immoral, th- th- thought of this way kind of people. So they're about as low as you can go on the pagan totem pole. <laughs> Right, and here they are, th- these, these sailors who are used to heavy storms, but this one's got their attention. They're afraid. They're afraid for their lives. They, they shout out to their gods, save us. Now, it makes you believe that they all had different gods, so maybe there's different groups of people represented here, and they're all calling out to your God, their God, for help. And then it says they threw the cargo, the literal word there again is hurled, So first, Yahweh hurled the wind and the storm, and now they're hurling the cargo. Is that the right thing to hurl over? (laughs) No, not yet. We'll get there. Look at this. They hurl the cargo overboard to lighten the ship, but all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. That is, Jonah's senses were dulled. He had it reminds me of the part in Star Wars, uh, Ray says to Luke Skywalker, you've turned yourself off to the force, haven't you? You know, it's like Jonah's turned himself off to God. He is, he is sleeping. He is slumbering. He doesn't want to think about God. He doesn't want to hear from God. He's turned God off. So he's asleep. Verse 6, the captain went down after him. And he says, how can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted, get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. And then verse 7, it says, then the crew cast lots. Now, we're not real sure what it is that they actually did. This would be kind of like drawing straws or actually throwing straws down. Whoever, you know, some, some way of discerning the, the divine, discerning the will of the gods to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. Now, wouldn't you know it, God's going to use their casting of lots to tell them exactly who is the culprit. And when they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the one to blame. Verse 8, why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Now, they they ask him several questions. Jonah, in verse 9, only answers the last one. He answered, I am a Hebrew, 
and I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. <laughs> you, get, you see the humor in this? Here these sailors are hearing that the God that's offended is the one that controls the sea, and they're probably thinking, what was going through your head? The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. See, notice they keep repeating that. He keeps trying to run away. He keeps trying to escape. Why, oh, why did you do it, they groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to stop this storm? And then Jonah says, guys, a brilliant idea, throw me into the sea. <laughs> make you wonder why he doesn't throw himself into the sea. Maybe, maybe Jonah is thinking, well, if I can get them to throw me into the sea, well, maybe God will still smite my enemies. I don't know. We don't know exactly what Jonah's motives are here. But he says, if you throw me into the sea, it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Verse 13, instead the sailors, again, this is overturning expectations. I mean, think about it, just in chapter 1, what we've seen so far, what you would expect someone to do, they're not doing. Jonah's a prophet, you'd expect him to go to Nineveh, he doesn't. The sailors are pagans, worshiping other gods. You wouldn't expect them to fear and revere Yahweh. You would think they wouldn't have any qualms or any hesitation in throwing him overboard, but they do. They do. Look what it says. They rode even harder to get the ship to land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. So they don't want to throw Jonah over. Verse 14, then they cried out to Yahweh. They cried out to the one true living God, Jonah's God. Oh, Yahweh, they pleaded. Don't make us die for this man's sin. Don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Yahweh, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. We don't presume to know what those are. We just don't want this man's blood on our hands. You can hear them saying this. And then verse 15 and 16. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and they hurled him. There you go. Remember Yahweh hurled? Then they hurled the cargo, but that wasn't the right thing. It's hurling Jonah. They hurl him overboard into the raging sea. The storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by Yahweh's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice, and they vowed to serve him. (laughs) How's Jonah doing? He just won the whole ship to the Lord. No credit to Jonah. Interesting, isn't it? And you say, what about the next verse? Well, there's one more verse in chapter 1, but actually in the Hebrew text, that's where chapter 2 begins. So that's where we're going to begin next Sunday. But before I close this teaching time for today, I want to quickly give you a few theological takeaways from chapter 1. And let's consider the implications for these truths and then be open to the Spirit in applying them to our, our own lives. Just three quick bullet points here. The first one, we see here in chapter 1 that God is sovereign. Now, what does that mean? Depending on what tradition you grew up in, it just simply means that God reigns over all. There's nothing beyond God's power. 
There's, there's nothing beyond God's rule and reign. The wind, the waves, pagan sailors, even Jonah, and especially our enemies. God is sovereign over it all. He cares for everyone, including those that we hate and don't want to give the news, the good news in this case. Secondly, we learn here that lost sailors, we might just say sinners, are capable of showing more faith than some prophets. Isn't that surprising? That sometimes the people that you least expect to see great faith are people like these pagan sailors. But yet here we have a reminder that you never know. You never know until you go. You never know until you go. Lastly, I see this theological point here that we need to apply to living. You may run from God and rebel against his will and his purposes for your life, but he will not let you go. Just as the Lord, Yahweh, who is chasing Jonah down and chased me down at Ozfest, will not let his people go. And he's not hunting us down to destroy us or to bring us harm but to bring us back in line with his will, that we might experience his life, experience the joy of his mission of mercy. Amen. And finally, I want to introduce you to a a post-teaching segment that we're going to do in this series, and we're calling it This Time Tomorrow. This time tomorrow. At the end of each message in Jonah, we're going to hear from people in our congregation just briefly. And I'm going to ask them two questions. Where will you be this time tomorrow? And how can we pray for you as you engage in God's mission there? You see, this is a way of connecting the Jonah story to our everyday lives and a way to connect Sunday to Monday and our faith to the rest of the week. So we're going to be inviting you to share in God's missional heart through your own life. And so this morning, would you welcome up Landon and Dane Mark to the stage? Thanks, guys. Appreciate you doing this. And you know what? And for sitting on the second row, I think some people in the church think that like this is a splash zone at SeaWorld, so they can't sit there, but good, good for you. I don't spit, I don't think, mostly. And it probably wouldn't get past the community table anyway. Two questions, and I'll I'll ask this question for the both of you. Where will you be this time tomorrow? So tomorrow, I'll probably be sitting at lunch, wrapping up, and about to transition into chemistry. Uh, I'll be walking with my friends to class. I'm probably starting a new unit. I just finished a test on Friday, so new units are always challenging, especially in chemistry. I struggle with that class a little bit, so. That's good, Dane. Um, For me, I'll just be finishing a test in biology, and um, I'll probably be in health class at this point. So um, biology is definitely a challenging class, so that test will be a little hard. It'll be a little stressful for me. Mm. And that's, we're at 11, uh, 19 tomorrow, right? So, so how now can we pray for you as you engage in God's mission of mercy where you are? So for um, spreading God's kindness, I like to share words of encouragement to my friends transitioning from class at lunch. So. Uh, sometimes it's hard on Mondays to find positive things to think about, but 
Yeah, Mondays are so tough. I can relate I mean, to that. That's yeah. yeah. So, yeah, just finding some positives in Monday and sharing God's good kindness with everyone. Um, one way you could pray for me is um, just for me to help spread the love of Christ to uh, people through my actions and the way I talk to like my teachers and my classmates and the respect I show to them. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let's pray for these guys. Can we do that? Lord, we just lift up Landon and Dane to you. Uh, you know, and now we know where they're going to be this time tomorrow. And we just lift them up to you, and we pray that you would give them courage, that you would empower them uh, to be your disciples, uh, to join you on this mission of mercy, to show your love, Jesus, uh, to those that don't know you. Uh, would you surprise them this time tomorrow by your goodness, by your love, by the power of your presence, and how you're working other people's lives, Lord? And, and, and Father, we'll just continue to pray for them as a church as they go. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. So, church, where will you be this time tomorrow? Stop and think about that for a moment. Where will you be at 1121 tomorrow? And how is God inviting you to join his mission of mercy there? Let's pray about that together as we now transition and move toward communion. Father, uh, once again, we come to you, Lord, and we thank you. We thank you for sending Jesus so that we can know what you are really like. And Lord, we're also thankful that we can, we can begin to see in this uh, inverted sort of way in the story of Jonah, your goodness, what you really want from us in this ancient comedy. Help us to, uh, to begin to apply this to our lives, Lord, to see your goodness, to see your love, to, to trust that you know what's best for us, that you have what's best for us, and that there's no better place to be than following you and doing what you've called us to do. Lord, as your people, as your church, help us to follow in the way of Christ, the one who was crucified, who's died, who's buried, who was raised, so that we might live. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.